Y'all don't take out the trash? I have to take out the trash at my house. Believe me, if we don't take out the trash at my house, it can be a problem real quick. In a word, diapers. In fact, somebody here learned that lesson the hard way back this fall. We were at the church camp out, and it was raining, and uh, James left a nice little present and a diaper, and Elizabeth put that in the van, and it was only there for about 10 minutes, and I thought, whoa, this is a problem. I got in and almost knocked me over. And I said, we've got to find a trash can to dispose of this. I don't want to ride all the way home smelling this <coughs> diaper. And so we decided to, we couldn't find a trash can, but we did find Mario's car. <laughs> so we put it in their truck. I put it right in the seat, right here on the side, you know, where the con- center console. And I just kind of wedged in there. I figured it'd be there all of five minutes before. And, and Mario's quite the jokester, so I didn't feel guilty about it at all. I put it in there, I closed it up. And <clears throat> then Mario came to me later, and, and Maria, just a few minutes later, he said, Pastor Ryan, we want you to come and see our place. I said, no problem, Mario. Show us where it is. So we went up, and they all got in the truck, and we were like... (laughs) We got up to the cabin. They all got out. Everything seemed fine. I thought, hmm, interesting. We saw their cabin, and then we, we proceeded to exit, and it looked like they were done with the truck for the day. And I thought, oh, my. By morning, this will be awful. Well, time passes, and I don't hear anything. I still don't hear anything. Until eventually, we're at the uh, Mills River Park. I say, hey, Mario, do you ever recall anything in your truck that was unusual? And no, I don't know of anything. (laughs) Nothing that smelled a little bit suspicious. No, I can't. Maria, do you... (gasps) Oh! (laughs) It was you! I said, I I was just asking questions. He said, oh, for two weeks, that was in my truck. I couldn't find it, and Maria kept saying, Mario, clean your truck is terrible, please. It can be very important to dispose of and take out the trash because it builds up. It stinks. Sometimes it gets infested or there's maggots. You got to take it out. And the longer you wait and the longer you leave it, the worse it's going to be. Am I right? It just kind of festers there. There was a lady in Detroit. They finally came and found this apartment. They estimated there was like a a pile of trash everywhere in this house. It was all quite organized, but it was everywhere. And they estimated it was four years worth of trash, not throwing anything out. They have a word for those people, hoarders. Yet she paid her rent on time. She was always well-dressed. She, you know, always looked very presentable but she never wanted to throw anything away. Now, some of you here might be wondering, I really don't like this idea of trash in the house of God, in the sanctuary. And I would agree. 
But how many of us, week after week after week after week, are bringing our garbage, things that we need to let go and get rid of, but we hang on to them and we harbor them? And we don't think it's going to matter. We don't think it's going to affect us. But there's a stench that goes along with that. And it permeates throughout our spiritual life, through our relationships, through how we view God. I mean, if you go into a room that doesn't smell good, and you can clean and clean and spray and clean, but until you empty the trash, you're wasting your time. Am I right? If there's something potent in there, it won't make any difference. Taking out the trash. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to look very briefly at a well-known story here about Joseph. You may recall Jacob and Rachel's first son. After many years of waiting, Joseph finally comes along. And so we pick up this story in, Revel- sorry, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3 and 4. Like to hear the sound of those pages turning. That's wonderful. Genesis chapter 37, beginning verse 3, and we read Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And as you go on through this story, he starts to reveal some dreams that he has. People don't like him. His brothers don't like him, I should say. And they conspire to kill him, it says in verse 18. In fact, let's read that in verse 17 and 18, the middle of 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. And now when they saw him afar off, they could recognize that hated robe. And they conspired against him to kill him. And as the story goes off, the course stripped that robe in verse 23. They cast him into a pit in verse 24. And finally, they are talked out of actually killing him. Let's just sell him as a slave. And that's exactly what they do. At the price of a handicapped slave... And as the story goes, Joseph wallows in self-pity. He rehearses the wrongs of his brothers. He dreams of revenge, of making them pay, and dies a bitter, angry slave. Is that right? No, he must have chosen to forgive. But then he works his way up, if you will. He's put in charge of Potiphar's house. And then he's falsely accused of rape of all things by his master's wife. So Joseph put in prison where he again wallows in self-pity, rehearses the way he was set up. He dreams of revenge, making her pay, and he dies in prison, an angry and bitter man. Is that right? No, he must have chosen to forgive his accuser. He obviously let it go because he became so helpful in prison. They put him in charge of the entire prison. And the Lord gives him the interpretation of dreams. And the butler promises to remember Joseph, but for two more years, 
Joseph hears nothing. So does Joseph get bitter and angry, filled with revenge? Does he rehearse the faults of the other? No, he chooses, obviously, to forgive once more and move on. And now Pharaoh has a dream. And he's brought before Pharaoh. And Joseph rightly tells him the dream, and Pharaoh places him as the chief minister in charge of the preparations. And during the famine, he sees, and this is where the story gets very interesting, he sees who? His brothers. And so Joseph, being a shrewd man, takes advantage of the situation, and in revenge, he shames them. He has them tortured. He gives them a piece of his mind, and he throws them into the dungeon to rot forever because they deserve it. Years have gone by. You've wrecked and ruined my life. Is that what it says? No, let's read about it. Genesis 45. Many chapters have gone by. A lot of time has gone by. Genesis 45, beginning verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Isn't that incredible? Incredible story of forgiveness. Because unresolved anger is like a cancer. And it rarely affects or impacts the person you're angry at, but it just rots away. It causes ulcers in the person that's angry, that's unforgiving. And all the while, the other person oftentimes doesn't know or care and is unaffected. Proverbs 17, 22 says, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. We know that Physiologically, that is true. We know today that bones are not dense masses, that blood travels through the bones. We know that a broken, depressed, discouraged spirit does literally dry the bones. Scientific studies have shown that. But we have it first here in Proverbs. Is there something this morning that is drying your bones? Is there an anger that you're hanging on to, a resentment, a bitterness, were you mistreated? Ministry of Healing 241 says this, grief, anxiety, discontent, remorse, guilt, distrust, all tend to break down the life forces and invite decay and death. On the flip side, she says, courage, hope, faith, sympathy, and love promote health and prolong life. A contented mind, a cheerful spirit, is health to the body and strength to the soul. Can you say amen to that? Turn me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. The little book of Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 31. 
Here Paul admonishes us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, that's loud quarreling, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's the desire to injure. Sometimes we might say that person has a real bent. They have a chip on their shoulder. And Paul says, put it away for your own good. Put it away. Verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ did what? Forgave you. I imagine many here this morning just might be filled with some bitterness, some anger, some resentment. Maybe you're good at rehearsing the wrongs that have been done to you. And maybe they're very legitimate wrongs. And everybody you tell gasps and says, I cannot believe they would do such a thing. Maybe you dream of revenge. But I would submit God wants to heal you from these things. You don't understand, Pastor. There's people in my life I just can't forgive. You don't understand. When I was a child, I was abused. You don't understand. My parents, they never loved me. You don't understand. My spouse ran off on me. You don't understand. I stood up for what was right, and as a result, I got fired from my job. You don't understand. There's some people I just can't forgive. But God says we need to forgive. And he longs to cleanse us from the pain that we're hanging on to. Others might feel this sermon is irrelevant for you because you don't have any bitterness, you don't have any anger, this is somebody else's problem. Let's get on to the next thing. Just like that patient that goes to the doctor and the doctor tells him, you have diabetes, you have high blood pressure, you have hypertension. If you don't change your lifestyle, you're going to die. And the patient says, but doctor, I feel great. I don't feel wrong. Nothing feels wrong at all. As sinners in the need of the grace of God, I believe many of us are spiritual diabetics not recognizing our symptoms, not realizing we have spiritual condition that is silently killing us, just like hypertension is known as the silent killer. They have no idea they have it, and then without warning, there's a heart attack. Spiritually, I imagine many of us are carrying some form of anger and bitterness, but we like to just push it away and pretend it's not there. As the Laodicean church, Scripture says we don't realize that we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We're in need of the righteousness of Christ. We have to be covered with Christ's righteousness. But the Laodicean is naked, and they don't realize it. We have spiritual hypertension, I would propose to some of you. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 113 and 114, says this. He who is unforgiving, has that unforgiving spirit, cuts off the very channel through which alone he can receive mercy from God. 
We should not think that unless those who have injured us confess the wrong, we are justified in withholding from them our forgiveness. It is their part, no doubt, to humble their hearts by repentance and confession, but we are to have a spirit of compassion toward those who have trespassed against us. Whether or not they confess their faults, However sorely they may have wounded us, we are not to cherish our grievances and sympathize with ourselves over our injuries. We're not to lick our wounds. We're not to rehearse. But as we hope to be pardoned for our offenses against God, we are to pardon all who have done evil to us. End quote. Now, in some instances, that can be quite easy, but in others, that can be extremely challenging. I read a story this week of a woman who was driving along on the interstate, something many of us did this week, and as they were passing over an underpass, a brick came through the windshield, hit her squarely in the face, blinding her right eye, destroying her teeth, crushing her face, had three surgeries and numerous procedures. But while she waited for help, she chose to forgive. Didn't even know who it was yet. Found out later it was some teenagers that were bored with nothing to do. She went as far as to appear in court pleading for mercy for the boys. She chose to forgive. And you say, well, I I just couldn't do that. I would challenge you with this idea that the price of forgiveness is always less than the price of unforgiveness. Hating someone and holding on to bitterness builds a prison around us. Forgiveness frees us from that prison. And who do we have the hardest time forgiving? I'd say typically those closest to us. A selfish spouse, a parent who's hurt us, a brother, a sister, an aunt and uncle for their cruel remarks, a friend, a teacher, a pastor, maybe me. And yes, ourselves. How do we do it? How do we forgive? What did Ephesians 4.32 say? Forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Psalm 86 verse 5 is a beautiful verse. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. I can't help but think of this story we looked at, the prodigal son, just this last Wednesday night. The father was ready to forgive. He was ready to run. He was ready to wrap that robe around and to reinstate him as a son in every way. Psalms 86.5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Don't you like that? The Lord is ready to forgive you and me and give us a new experience. He's ready to give you a new life. He's ready to forgive. Matthew 18, 21 to 35 You know the story well. There's a man who owes a master a huge amount of money. 60 million days wages. 
If you're lucky, you'll get in maybe 50,000 days. 60 million days wages. And he goes and he begs and he pleads for forgiveness and it's granted to him and he goes out into the street. You know the story. And he finds the man who owes him a very small sum, 100 days wage. And he chokes him and he says, pay back everything that you owe me. Friends, God has forgiven us so much. Is it true? Are we in denial? Are you just better than everybody else I know? For when people in our lives cross us, offend us, offend me, wound me, they've been so unkind. They have spoken untrue words. They've tarnished my reputation. Perhaps something far worse. Perhaps they stole your spouse. But no matter how bad or awful the Bible tells us, we are to forgive. It costs us more to not forgive than does to forgive. I believe nothing anyone has done to us could surpass what we have done to God. Our sins, your sin, my sin, put Jesus on the cross. Yes, we can be hurt in a legitimate way, unjustly, unkindly, unfairly hurt, but nothing in the way that was done to Jesus. And so Jesus comes to this earth to save us, and we nail him on a tree. That same parable in Matthew, Peter asks, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? The idea was three times, but no, seven, this complete number, even doubling it and beyond, seven times. This is impressive, Peter. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Has somebody ever crossed you 490 times? If so, maybe you've missed the principle altogether. Does anyone here have an unforgiving spirit towards someone? You know, we as human beings can hang on to words for years. And we say, oh, I know how I'm going to get them back. I'm going I'm to just make them suffer and pay with pinpricks. Every time we get together for Christmas, every time we get together for Easter or another holiday, I'm just going to pinprick them to death. I'm going to give them the silent treatment. I'm not going to look them in the eye. Every time they ask me to do something, I'll say, okay. Give me that little, okay. Oh, you're so smug. And then if anybody tries to point out, well, you're just being so mean. What? What have I done? You can't point to anything. Pinpricks. But it's obvious to everybody you're acting about five years old. Maybe three. Does God treat us that way? Does he pinprick us to death? Who do you need to forgive? Who are you angry with? What grudge are you holding on to? And is it truly, is it truly worth it? Manuscript, manuscript Releases, volume 21, page 37. Very small quote. Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. One sentence. 
hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. Why don't we understand the gospel? Because we don't see Jesus hanging on the cross for me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was too much. In that moment, Jesus was overwhelmed. If there's any other way, but he surrendered his desires for you and for me. Not my will, he says, but yours be done. My sin put him there. And when people mistreat us, we react. How dare you? Do you have any idea who you're talking to? I'm so hurt. I'm so offended. And when I mistreat Jesus, he dies in my place. Psalms 86.5, he is ready to forgive us. Are we ready to forgive others? What does the Lord's prayer say? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What does Matthew 6.15 say? But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The reality is my ability to forgive others is a measure as to if I have received God's forgiveness or not. Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. Christ is our example of self-denial and self-sacrifice. Did he deserve it? Was it his just due? Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. When the power of the gospel has taken hold in my life, I am crucified with Christ. And when I'm crucified with Christ, I'm a living demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? That he's come to save us, not in our sins, but from our sins. That we can have a transformed life. That the world will see the glories of heaven open and will say, they have been with Jesus. God has given them power and victory. And now we see what it means to be a Christian. The burdens of sin can be removed. I can be free in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. I've been to too many churches that say, all you need to do is accept Christ, but you'll just keep on sinning and be weighed down by the burden of guilt until Jesus comes. I don't want to be saved in my sin, in my trash. Should I jump in there and walk around and say, I'm a newborn Christian? I don't want that. I don't want my evil habits. I don't want my perverse thoughts. I don't want my guilt, my anger, my bitterness. I want to be transformed. I want to be pulled out of the trash can. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Is that promise true or should we rip it out? Imagine if we had a pathological murderer here in Henderson County and they received the Advent message. And we told them, Jesus will forgive you. All you have to do is accept Jesus as your Savior and you'll be saved but you'll just keep on sinning and shooting and stabbing, killing, cutting people up until Jesus comes. 
What? Is that the power of the gospel? I can keep snapping at my wife, talking bad about people at work. I can continue to have a bad attitude to be a terrible person to be around. That's not the power of the real, of the real gospel. The power of the gospel brings restoration to my soul. Don't we want to be delivered from our sins, not saved in them? This is what it means to be crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's Jesus that lives in me. So the question is, am I really dead? Do I treat people like Christ would? Or as I would? As they deserve? When Christ was here, he was called a sinner, a drunkard. He hung out with prostitutes, they said. When he was accused of blasphemy over and over, and several times they were so angry at him that they took him to the cliff to throw him off. And eventually they got what they wanted, and he was mistreated, he was spit upon, he was beaten, he was cursed. They put a crown of thorns on his head and nails in his hands. While one of his best friends said, I've never seen this man, I don't know what you're talking about. Yet he took it patiently. Patiently. And in the midst of it all, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If Jesus can do that, where do I get off with my pain? I need to be crucified with Christ. I need to see daily Jesus on the cross for me. And as I behold Christ on the cross, how can I hold anything back from anybody else? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance, with patience, some translations say, the race that is set before us, looking unto who? To Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We need to look unto Jesus. We need to be crucified with Christ. We need to be a demonstration of the gospel to the world. If we preach only the theory of the gospel, only the witness of the gospel, without the witness of the gospel, I should say, so if we're just preaching theory and we're not showing witness, I don't believe this gospel is going to go very far. It's certainly not going to go around the world. Sounds nice in theory, but I still see you in your worst moments. And I'm not convinced that you have anything that I need. That's the theory without the witness. I believe the world is dying to see that it works. Does the gospel change people? Has it changed you? If not, why am I interested in what you have? I believe God is calling us to demonstrate his everlasting, unchanging gospel of the three angels' message. People who have truly experienced his forgiveness have experienced healing, they've experienced transformation, and they demonstrate it. And God wants to do all three in you this morning. Yet we like to come back and say, this is what I'd like to be changed by the power of the gospel. 
but they've never apologized. Well, you have to choose to forgive them. Even when people mistreat you, you choose to forgive them. And you show them what Jesus' love is all about. Because you've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, you no longer live. Jesus now lives in me. I want you to ask you to do something this morning. I want you to take your fists. Come on. They're attached. You can't lose them. Take your hands. And I want you to clench some fists. Clench them tight. I would like you to imagine that you're holding grief, anxiety, guilt, and remorse. When injustice or unfairness causes bitterness and anger inside of you, you are the only one that can get rid of it by choosing to forgive. Who's God laid on your heart this morning? Why not forgive them right now? Well, they haven't apologized. They haven't admitted they're wrong. They haven't made things right. doesn't matter. Hating someone and holding on to bitterness builds a prison around us, not them. Forgiveness frees us. And I know the pain in here that some of you are experiencing is sharp. It is intense. It's so close to the surface that it literally throbs in every waking activity of your life. That pain, you don't want to let it go. Something deep inside you says, I have to have vengeance on this one. Pastor, you don't know the pain they've caused. How our daily lives have been affected. The financial struggles that have resulted. How my children have been put through all kinds of pain and heartache and the humiliation and we're just fighting to survive, and they're off scot-free. You don't understand. How can you tell me to forgive? I'm not asking you to forgive because it was acceptable. It was mean. It was selfish. But I'm asking you to forgive because they don't deserve the power to live in your head and turn you into a bitter and angry person. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And so when you walk out of church today, you can walk out of here with clenched fists, holding on to those things, and your spiritual and physical life will suffer for it. It will. But instead, would you like to open your hands? I would invite you to take a deep breath and say, Lord, I'm releasing it. I'm releasing it. By your grace and by your power, I'm letting it go. You've forgiven me. Now I am forgiving them. Amen. Healing begins with forgiveness. Accepting God's forgiveness and extending that forgiveness to others. Don't you think it's time that we take out the trash? I think so. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that today can be a watershed moment. That, that individual, that person, that situation that the Holy Spirit has brought to our minds, that we thought we were over, we were done with, Lord, I pray that we can forgive as you have abundantly forgiven us. 
Lord, help us to do that. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need all of that to make this possible. But may we today be able to say we are crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. Help us to sacrifice our need and our desire for revenge and simply let things go, to take out the trash and to move on in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.